0: Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the oneness that is accomplished in Christ. God, thank you that you are bringing about the restoration of all things and how it has manifested your manifold wisdom is seen even now in the life of the church. Lord, help us to see these things and enjoy them all the more today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want you guys to uh, imagine for a moment that you are a Jew living in the first century in the city of Jerusalem. So imagine you are a Jew living in the first century, living in Jerusalem. Imagine that you've heard about this new guy that's sort of been walking around doing amazing things. His name is Jesus, this sort of prophet that you've heard about. Imagine you've heard about this guy. You've heard that he's healing people. You've heard that he's uh, teaching as one that has authority. You've heard that he's even forgiving sin, that he's raising the dead. And you've heard that this one that is teaching with authority, forgiving sin, doing all these things, you've heard that he's coming to your city. You've heard that he's coming to Jerusalem. And so you are, as you're thinking about these things, your neighbor comes by and says to you, hey, this Jesus, you know, this Jesus we've heard about that's coming in. He is the son of David. Your neighbor tells you, and that language of the son of David reflects a promise that God made to Israel's greatest king, David. It was a promise of a great king that would come in the line of David that would come and reign forever. That this king in the line of David that would come, uh, he would reign and restore the fortunes of Israel, return her to her prominence, and since your people have been kicked around by centuries, by one people group after another, you're really looking forward to this king to come have been kicked around by Assy- your people. Have been kicked around by Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians and now Rome. This Jesus of Nazareth uh, must be the son of David. So you're thinking, and since David was a wealthy uh, king and he exhibited the zenith of Israel's influence in the region, this promised son he must be bringing in the reign of Israel back to her golden age. That's what you and your friends are thinking. And there, just as you're thinking about these things, you see one of your neighbors go, look, there he is. And you look up on the horizon and what do you see? You see Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, that was a strange note as you're thinking about Jesus of Nazareth, that place where nothing good comes from. Small little insignificant town. That's a bit odd to you. But nevertheless, you see him coming in on the horizon and you go up and you, along with the crowds, run up to that street where all the crowds are there and up there you see Jesus and he's riding on the back of a donkey and as soon as you see this Jesus rising on the back riding on the back of a donkey you then remember to yourself all those stories that your dad told you about the prophecy of Zechariah that the king would come in on the back of a donkey and you start to think to yourself this is this is really happening this is really happening. And as you're sitting there thinking about all these things, seeing Jesus come in, you grab some of the palm branches nearby and you throw them down in front of that donkey as you see Jesus coming in. And you take your coat and you throw it off. And you begin to sing alongside the rest of your friends that are nearby, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You're all singing this. And as he comes by you, you reach out, you touch the donkey, you gaze at Jesus, and you wonder and say to yourself, finally, it's all happening. It's all happening. Our King is here. And you go to sleep that night with great joy, along with all the rest of the Jews in your city. With great happiness. Now this is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As it is told to us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What What happens in your sort of city is tragic. What happens in the following days is tragic. Jesus does not fit in with the religion of the age. He does not act like the king that you expected him to be. He doesn't play along with the power-hungry, self-righteous and prideful leaders, the Pharisees, who are using uh, their power for their own gain. In fact, one of His first acts upon arrival in Jerusalem, of course, is to go to the place of worship, to the temple. And as soon as He goes into that temple, Jesus walks in and He sees that it's been set up sort of like a strip mall where people are making money off of other people. And Jesus, so angry at this extortion... He flips over the tables saying that this is supposed to be a house of worship, house of prayer. Instead of spending all of his time with those false teachers, those religious leaders, Jesus hangs out with prostitutes, tax collectors and drunkards. He even tells your people to pay taxes to Rome. And so in less than a week, Jerusalem's euphoria over their coming king gets reduced to nothing worse. You begin to see Jesus as an enemy. Most all of the people, most all of your people are disappointed. This king is not what you expected him to be. He didn't seem interested in restoring the material fortunes of Israel, at least not immediately. He keeps talking about this kingdom of heaven that is made of the weak and the destitute, the forgotten peoples and uh, and telling rich people to sell all that they have and follow him. In less than a week, with the encouragement of the self-interested Pharisees, most of Jerusalem would trade Jesus in for a common criminal. And have Jesus killed. Because he claimed to be the very one that they were lauding him for just a few days ago. Many in Israel, friends, did not have eyes to see Jesus. They gravitated to the old covenant passages in the Bible that made their lives sound more immediately comfortable and profitable. They didn't listen or maybe they weren't taught that this coming king would be a suffering servant that was prophesied to die like the goats for their sin on the day of atonement. Nor did they pay attention to the other passages, or maybe they weren't taught them. Passages like Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, where it says that in the latter days, the nations, the Gentiles, would stream up to the mountain of God, the house of the Lord, and be established there. The Gentiles would go up and be established on the mount of the Lord. Maybe they thought that the Gentiles would sort of come into the kingdom, come into Jerusalem, come into Israel, sort of like the Jews of old, like sort of sojourners, but not be established. They missed the answer to all of God's promises to them, even though He was right in front of them in plain view. Instead of worshiping Him, you and your friends sought to destroy Him. And as you heard just a moment ago, This is why Paul, the author of this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, this is why Paul, the author of the letter to the Ephesian church, this is why he's in jail. Look at verse one again, chapter three, verse one. It says there that for this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, that reason that he's referencing there is what we talked about last week. So if you're wondering what that was, or maybe you weren't here, look back at chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We see there this amazing reality. Chapter 2, 14 and 15, that in Christ Jesus, he has overcome the hostility that existed between us and God and us and one another. There's no longer two people of Jew and Gentile, but in Christ, he's making the two one. And those one people, those Gentiles who trust in Christ for salvation, along with those believing Jews, they are no longer strangers and aliens. In particular, those Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but they are now fellow citizens, members of the household of God. And so because Paul was teaching Jews that Jesus of Nazareth was the answer to God's promises, as indicated by his resurrection from the dead, Therefore, believing Gentiles are now fellow citizens. The Jews hated him for that. Just as they did Jesus when they threw him into jail, as it were, and be crucified. And this is why he can be said to be a prisoner, Paul. This is why he can be said to be a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. It's because he's preaching this message that Jesus is the Christ. And therefore, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, among others, is now true. And the Jews hated Jesus. They crucified him as a result. Now, since Paul is testifying to the same message, now they're throwing him in jail. Now, it's important to note, if you don't know this already, the guy that's writing this, Paul, the one we've been talking about just most recently, he used to be one of those Jews that hated the message of the gospel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee, trained by Gamaliel, which was like the D.A. Carson or name your favorite theologian of the day. All right. He was trained under that. So he knew his Bible Uh, But the resurrected and ascended Jesus met Paul as he was on his way to go and hurt other Christians. He had been hurting them. He'd been persecuting them. He was on his way to, to go and persecute more. And this is when the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ speaks to Paul, then called Saul, and he asks Paul, then called Saul, why are you persecuting, note the language, me? You mess with Jesus, you mess with his wife. And his wife, just like any marriage, is his one, he's one with them. So to mess with his people is to mess with him. And, and Jesus is asking Paul, then called Saul, why was he doing that? And, John, uh, and then God made, in Christ Jesus, he then makes Paul to see the truth of the gospel. He see that Christ really was the Christ. You see that Christ has atoned for sin. Uh, Paul then believes in Jesus. His sin is atoned for. He's reconciled to God. And because he is reconciled to God, he's born again. Therefore, he moves from Saul to Paul because he's born again. He gets a new name. Now Paul is preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see that there in verse 8 of chapter 3? But again, Paul, because Paul was faithful to the Bible... Faithful to the Old Testament scriptures, we might say. Faithful to Jesus' command to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Because of that, he's thrown in prison. Now, wouldn't it be great if we actually had the account of him getting thrown in prison to sort of see those events happen, to understand them better, understand Ephesians? Wouldn't it be great if we had that? Guess what? I have good news. We do have it. Isn't that great? Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun to think about? Yes. It's in the book of Acts. Go ahead and turn there. Flip back, if you're in your Bibles, that's left of Ephesians. Acts chapter 21. Here is the testimony of when Paul gets thrown into prison. So this testimony here in Acts chapter 21, so this is at the back end of his ministry of going all through the nations to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews. And he's planted churches. He's gone three missionary journeys, planted all kinds of churches all over the place. He is also known in Jerusalem, just as Jesus was in a way, because he was this famous guy that was opposed to Christianity. Now he's for it. So he's come back to Jerusalem. That's the events. This is at the back end of his ministry, Paul's ministry. And this is what happens. Twenty one verse twenty seven. It says this when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia Seeing him in the temple, now they would have known, they're from, from Asia, so Paul was around there planting churches, right? So they see him in the temple, stirred up, the, they, by the way, they didn't have Twitter and Facebook, so it was, you know, like they would have known this what this dude looked like, right? Anyway, we don't think about stuff like that, but anyway, they see him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd, these Jews, stir up the whole crowd, Paul's in the temple, stirs up the whole crowd, and laid hands on him. Just so you know, that ain't like they ain't laying hands on him just to bless the brother, all right? They're laying hands on him. Follow me? Okay. Verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, note the emphasis, he even brought Greeks into the temple. And has defiled this holy place. For they have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian. Isn't that interesting, an Ephesian? He's writing to Ephesians. For they, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed, didn't say that he did, but they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Can, can Gentiles come into the temple back in these days? No. And they're thinking, yeah, yeah he's bringing him in. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Paul's just causing the whole city in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. There it is. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 3, 1, he is in prison for these Gentiles because he's out there preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles that they are one in Christ Jesus, and he's in the temple worshiping the Lord like everybody else. And they think that he's corrupting the temple because he's saying that Gentiles can be a part of the worship. All right, so later in the trial, we get Paul's defense. All right, so imagine courtroom. Paul, then we're going to get his testimony as to, His testimony of the events of what happened. Look over at chapter 24. He does this numerous times. I'm going to give you one example. So here's Paul. Now he's speaking to Felix, who's a Roman governor. And here's his defense. He's in prison. He's in chains because of his preaching the gospel to the Gentiles that they are part of the kingdom of God, uh, which he, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just read it. Here's his defense. Verse 14. But this I confess to you, Paul's talking, but this I confess to you that according to the way that's. First century language for Christianity, which according to the way which they call the Jews call a sect. So think of, you know, some sort of cult. Which they call a sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. That's code language for Old Testament. Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. You get what Paul's saying here? I'm catching this? He's saying, all I'm doing is teaching the same Jewish Bible that they believe. I'm just teaching the exact same Jewish Bible. Same thing. That's all I'm doing. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not guilty. I'm just teaching. You believe the Old Testament. I but They wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, by the way. Right. So just so you know, it wasn't old to them. It was current. But anyway, so he he said, I'm just teaching that you believe that I believe that that's what I'm doing. Why am I in jail? Slide down to verse 21 of chapter 24. He goes on to say it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. See, Paul's defense was that he was only being faithful to the Jewish Bible. The problem was, guys, is the Jews didn't see Jesus as the resurrected Messiah that would usher in the kingdom and see those Gentiles then stream in together. Because, and because they denied the reality of Jesus as the Christ, they then denied the reality that Gentiles had any place in the temple. Because the temple was for the Jews. Those Jews still wanted to keep the separation. Jews wanted a material kingdom now. They rejected Jesus. They wanted to maintain the distinction between Jew and Gentile. But Paul's whole defense was that, no, 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 I'm just teaching the same thing. Christ is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. There's no longer any division. He's come. Jesus really was the promised son of David. He was the answer to all of God's promises. He was inaugurating the kingdom of heaven. He did atone for sin. And the resurrection proves that all of this is real. And of course, as a result of this, many Jews believe. We find like 3,000 believe in Acts chapter 3. Many Jews believe, but most don't. And as a result, again, it was hidden in plain view, Christ was. As a result, the thrust of God's work would now turn to the nations, to the Gentiles, to bring the fullness of them into His kingdom, to make the two one. And all of this, of course, is as we saw last week, the same promise that God had made from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, one to three, when in Abraham, he said all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we saw I'm not going to do it again. It'd be fun to do it again just for kicks and giggles. But we could go back and see in Revelation five, nine and seven. nine. And that's what happens in heaven. All nations, all tribes, all tongues together as one worshiping Christ. Paul is just saying, oh, that's what I've been doing. All right. Flip back to Ephesians three. Now, if you're wondering, I'm sort of at the end of point one. All right. Nathan, where's your division statements going to come in? All right. I need some help though on that. (laughs) Ephesians three. You see all that language about the mystery of Christ there in Ephesians three, one to 13. You see it. If If you're if you're paying close attention, always look for repeated phrases. Right. That's a good Bible study tactic. Hopefully you learned that in the Titus two forum last month or so. Right. And you look over there, you should see it there in verse three, verse four, verse six and verse nine. The mystery of Christ. See it? He said, I'm in prison. I'm preaching the mystery of Christ. Paul says in verse 3 that this mystery was made known to him by revelation. What's that? Well, that's that thing we already talked about in Acts chapter 9 where the ascended Jesus looks at him and speaks the gospel to him. He gets that. He's given eyes to see what was already there. In verse 5, Paul says, it's the, this mystery was not made known to previous sons of men and other generations as it has now been made known. So if you got a pencil, got a pen, got a whatever, circle as. This mystery was not made known to previous uh, sons of men in other generations as it has now been made known. I've been, guys, most of my week this week studying this sermon. That's what I've been trying to figure out the whole week. All right. I'm, trying to, I'm going around I'm talking to people. I'm calling pastors. Hey, man, what's some reading commentaries? It's so important to get this right. So it wasn't as though it wasn't known to them, this mystery. It wasn't, known, it wasn't as though it wasn't there in the text of the Old Testament. It just wasn't made known as it had now been made known. In other words, since Jesus is there, you got the answer. It's easier to see. I don't know if you're like this. I was so bad, still terrible at math. And so, man, I found, I don't know what great it was, I found that you could go to the back of the book and the answer was there. Literally, so, this is amazing. I'd get the answer, I can't believe they would give it to you. And I would go, all right, so the answer is whatever, you know, 10. So then I'd go back to the thing, and I'd try to figure out how they went from that to 10. And I would get it most of the time. I actually passed. Like, I got a C, I think, you know, something like that. <laughs> so I was able to keep going. So, But the thing it was the answer at the back that helped me see. So in the same way, as it has now been revealed, Jesus is now there, we can now see him in flesh. And we can see that he now, we can see it more clearly, what was already there. That mystery that was hidden before. And what is the mystery exactly, Nathan? Can you make this as clear for me? What's that mystery Paul keeps referencing? Look at verse 6. That's your answer. There's the mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And we see, look down at verse 11, that was the eternal plan of God. That's the way that it always was, in other words. This was not some new thing. He's like, well, you know, the Jews aren't really working out. Let's go to the nations. See how they do. No. Not that way at all. It's always been that way. We saw that back in Genesis chapter uh, 12, verses 1 to 3. I could take you back into Ephesians chapter 3. We could even say Genesis 1, right? That they're supposed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That's what actually happens in Revelation. This is the eternal plan to have the two be made one. So God had always meant it to be this way. Uh, and so God was going to use now he'd been working through the Jews and now those Jews reject Jesus. Many of them come to faith, but most of them don't. He then moves, bringing in the fullness of Gentiles, now bringing in all the world, the, the nations, bringing them together as one. And it's important to note it was there. This mystery was there in the Old Testament that it was going to come this way. It was there. That's Paul's whole point. Remember, we looked at that. In Acts? His whole point is I'm just teaching the Bible, y'all. In fact, we could even t- look at New Testament saints that have sought, that did see that mystery in the Old Testament, that the Jews would become one with the Gentiles. Think about Simeon, Luke chapter 2. Christmas commercials on. Crazy. Serious? It's not Christmas time yet. But anyway, so Luke, we always think about Simeon at Christmas time, right? There's baby Jesus. He sees him in the temple, and what does he say to Jesus? He looks at Jesus, baby Jesus, in the face, and says that this baby's going to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. Simeon knew it. Right, we think think uh, 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 Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter three. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee; he knows his Bible. And Jesus looks at him. He's referencing. He's talking about his own ministry, what he's going to do. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in John three, like, "How do you not know this as a teacher of the law?" I could give you so many other examples, but as verse five says, Jesus reveals; he's the revelation. If you, if you want a nice, clear, succinct, all you type A folks in the room, right? So we could say Jesus is the revelation. We're going to go point two. We could say Jesus is the redemption point three. Jesus is the restoration. So easy. Right. There you go. That's for you. Type a people. So right. What we see here is Jesus is the revelation of the law. He's the answer. Look at verse five. It even references the holy apostles and prophets that he is the peace. Jesus is the peace between God and man as well as Jew and Gentile. Jesus is the revelation of God's promise in the Old Testament to heal the world and make the world one again. So in essence, what has been happening here, it's as though through the Old Testament, we had a blindfold on the eyes and we're told he's going to be like this and the Messiah is going to be like this and then he's going to do this and you're like, oh, it's great. And in your mind, you're coming up with all these things as to what he's going to be like. And then finally, it's like, poof, and there he is. Oh, that's what he, that's not exactly what I was thinking he's going to look like. That's essentially what's happening. And don't lose sight of this, guys. This is so important. Look at verse 5. How does seeing this mystery, how do we come to see this mystery? How do we come to know this thing that was hidden, that was actually there? How do we come to see it? Verse 5. By the what? Spirit. By the Spirit. The Spirit has got to do it. The Spirit has got to help us So what's the difference between maybe you that are sitting here today that are not believing versus your friend sitting next to you going, man, this is amazing stuff. But the difference is, is the Spirit is illumining the eyes of one and not the other. So the Spirit is illumining the hearts, the eyes of the heart of Paul to see this. He's illuminating us that believe to see that Christ is the mystery, that He is the revelation, bringing the two together. The Spirit is giving me, He's giving you, beloved, eyes to see this mystery when others like the Jews of Jesus and Paul's, they could not see it, even though it was right in front of them. This is the heart of the Holy Spirit's ministry, guys. Go back and read John chapter 16. The heart of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to reveal Christ. glorify Christ that we would see and enjoy Christ and so the point of this passage is bound up in understanding what the mystery of Christ is and what we said the mystery of Christ is that is that because of the ministry of Christ believing Jews and Gentiles are now one with uh, are now one together in place of the two there's now one one with each other there's no longer two separate people. There's one people, one family of God that enjoy one world with their one God. No more fragmentation, no more division, no more separation in the temple. Jesus broke down that hostility. That's why that veil being torn is so important. So if you trust in the finished work of Christ, you can know peace with God. And we can know peace with one another. No matter who we are. And what was hidden was the manner of what was hidden was the manner in which all of this would come about. So they knew that, it would be born, they knew that Jesus would be born of a virgin, but they didn't know it would be like this 13-year-old girl that nobody had heard of named Mary. Right? They knew that he was going to bring in a kingdom, but they didn't know it would be a subversive kingdom, a kind of kingdom that wasn't materially evident and politically powerful in the here and now. Those were the aspects that was uh, hidden. But the reality is it was all there in the Old Testament. So the mystery is Christ making all the nations one. And the reason why it was a mystery is because it didn't fit with the notions of worldly power and prejudice. The masses simply couldn't bring themselves to believe that power was found in humility. They couldn't bring themselves to believe that love is found in giving. That kingdoms are not found in material, evident, external political realities. So important. That's the end of, as it were, point one. The rest of them are shorter. But listen, I want you to get this. This is so important. This is so radical, this mystery. Christ is the answer. He's healing the world. But how's he doing it? Look at that look verse 6. You can't miss this. we gotta we got to see that. So all we've said so far is that is what the mystery is. But how does that mystery come about? Well, look at verse 6. That shows you how it came about. The Gentiles, the nations, so that that word Gentiles, by the way, the word is ethnos, which is where we get our word ethnicity, which is where we use the word nations. So the Gentiles. So if you hear me going nations, Gentiles, that's why. So the Gentiles, the nations are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise. How? Here it is. Here comes the how. How did all this happen in Christ Jesus through the gospel? Six words, guys, if you don't know those six words you got to figure those out. If you're not a Christian, you've got to make sense of those six words. If you are a Christian, you should be able to explain those six words. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel. How did this happen? In Christ, through the gospel. Restoration of all things, in Christ, through the gospel. Guys, this notion of in Christ, this union with Christ, this is the 25th reference of, being, of our union with Christ in Ephesians so far. 25th. 25th reference. We're not even out of chapter 3 yet. We've already gotten to 25 references of being in Christ. And our union with Christ, y'all should get this now, right? It's right here, right? Here it is. Our identity in Christ. Study in Ephesians. What does that mean? Well, you should be able to explain that hopefully by now. And all that means, here it is. If you forgot or didn't know, here it is. All that Christ is, is in us. And all that we are, is put on Him all the fullness of Christ in us all the fullness of us in him who Christ is is who we are through by grace through faith we now have peace with god and our fellow man it comes in and through the work and person of christ and so that's why paul says in ephesians 2:14 that he's our peace it comes but it also comes in christ through the gospel right you see it there verse 6 gospel means what does gospel mean? You all know that? It means good news, right? It means good news. And so you to, to my non-Christian friends, if you're zoning out, come back in right now. Wake up. Here we go. Come back in. All right, here we go. Just pay attention for the next five minutes. Or you can zone back out. This is the most important part of the sermon. So in Christ, through the gospel, what's the gospel? The gospel is good news. And we've seen that the good news is, is that from the very beginning, God was intending to heal the brokenness, the death, the division of the world. We've seen that it was always his plan to do that. That's his eternal plan, 311. And we, knew, he, we know from the Bible, it teaches we can't do it. No matter of religion, no matter of programs, can accomplish healing, restoration, nothing. And so, to my non-Christian skeptical friend maybe, listen, just as your hunger points to the reality of food, just as your thirst points to the reality of water, your hunger for a better world is real. It points to a reality, and its reality is Christ. Christ is the one that does it all, and it's coming through the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that God is holy. That means He's set apart, He's pure, He speaks words, and the world comes into existence. It didn't just, the world didn't just sort of happen here, it's God speaks it into existence. But mankind, we were all in Adam. Adam and Eve are the first two men and women in the world. They reject God. They reject God. There's separation. That's where the separation, that's where sin, that's where death enters the world right there. At the heart of our hearts, wanting to be like God, not wanting to love Him. That's where the separation came. At the deepest level. And God worked through the Jews to reveal Himself time and again. They do not see, they do not believe. They go kind of good for a little while, then it messes up. Then they get to the end. They're still waiting for the one that will bring healing back into the world. And that's where the Old Testament closes, and we open up in the New Testament. So there's creation, then there's fall—that's rebellion—and then there's redemption. Christ redeems the world. So Jesus Christ lives a sinless life. He lives heavenly. He lives in the way that we would all love. That's why he's so influential every corner of the world because there's something in him the whole world sees that looks right, and he was the. Son of God, fully God, fully man, lives the beautiful heavenly life, perfectly obeys God that we can't. And so therefore, his sin uh, death, his sin atoning death is able to satisfy, appease the wrath of God that comes for our sin. And he's placed in his resurrection then illustrates that thing that you want. The healing of heaven and earth. No more death, no more sin. All beauty, all love. That's what Jesus' resurrection indicates. That now he redeems not only our spiritual selves, but our physical selves. And so those that repent and believe, they can be born again to this new and living hope. So that then, the restoration of all things, the last chapter in the Bible, Jesus will bring it about. That's what we've been talking about. And so my hope for you, friend, is that you would repent of your sins and trust in Christ. That you might know that hunger that you want. A better world. Full of love and beauty and forgiveness. And it comes in Christ. And it comes through the Gospel. And for all those that repent of their sin and trust in christ they then are gathered into this thing right here what do we call this the church you might look at it and say pretty unimpressive nathan pretty unimpressive right this is god's plan well indeed it is that's god's final point here so you might be saying friend well nathan if all of that is true that if christ really did do that he really was those people Where can I go to see the restoration of all things? Where can I go to see that oneness? Where can I go to see love and healing? Paul's answer is Christ through the church. So, Paul preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so as to bring to the light what had been hidden for darkness, he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look at verse 10. There's your answer. Those that repent and believe this is the place where God is now showing in earth heavenly things, how he's healing the world. Verse 10, so that he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ, Paul does, so that through the what church, the manifold wisdom of God might now, underline that word, might now, 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 now be made known, be revealed. So the manifold wisdom of God, the unsearchable riches of Christ get preached. The manifold wisdom of God, manifold there means uh, many colors. So the many colors of God, His wisdom, His beauty, are now, now, today, made known, be revealed, be experienced, be enjoyed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Alright, Nathan, what on earth is that? I've been waiting for you to define that one. It's quite simple. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You can look back at chapter 6. We'll get to this next year. Uh, so... <laughs> talk to me after we get more but the short answer is here's the short answer short answer is where's the rulers how's the church revealing the glory of God to the heavenly places those rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are the angels and the demons the, the deepest spiritual level of the world the deepest spiritual level is not the physical the deepest spiritual level is the spiritual realities of the world the angels and demons know the church is the expression of God's wisdom and glory they know that the angels, you can look at 1 Peter. The angels love to look into this gathering and hear what we're talking about. Why? Because they can't sing amazing grace. Right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound it saved a, what? Wretch, like me. The angels were never wretches. So they just love to think about the glory and the grace of God to sinners like me and you. And demons, they hate what is happening in the church, how it pictures the oneness of God. They hate it. Satan and his demons know the manifold wisdom of God in the church. They know the beauty of God, the glory of God in the church, which explains why Satan's chief design is to divide churches or to get people to believe that they don't need to be part of a church. Because if Satan can succeed in that, if, if you can take the name of Christ and just sort of be removed or on the fringes of a church, they win. So they're like, great, because then you can't come into this assembly and show how great the glory of God in His many colors are. And so it's because of that that we need to recognize that Jesus, just as Jesus was hidden in plain sight to the unbelieving Jews, so is the manifold wisdom of God in the church hidden in the plain sight of the world. Again, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, whoever else, they ain't clamoring to get in to see what's going on here. right? They don't really care that much. Now, they might care because on Tuesday, it's election day. What are the evangelicals going to say? Right? That's not it. They don't really want to know the thing that we get most excited about. And yet, the reality is that the deepest spiritual level, God knows, Satan knows, this is the most important reality on the earth. This is the manifold wisdom of God. The world doesn't think that there's anything to see in Restoration Church. They think that power, progress, beauty, manifold wisdom is found in a thousand other places. They think that many colors and beauty there is in other places. They write about it. They make movies about it. Nobody, as I mentioned, from the world is clamoring like the angels are to see the beauty of the people of God rejoicing in the unsearchable riches of Christ. But as it was hidden to the Jews of old, so it is hidden to many people today. It is revealed to us that this church is the beauty of God. This is how He's changing the world. This is the embassy of heaven here on earth. The church is the expression of the revelation of of Christ's redemption and restoration. Which is why the apostles, by the way, what do they do in Acts? They go out and they preach the gospel. People respond. What do they do? They start churches. Why? Because the church is the manifold wisdom of God. All right. Third thing to share then. How is it, you say, that the church, or let's say Restoration Church in particular, is the expression of the manifold wisdom of God? I'm moving closer to application. You're like, Nathan, you've been in Bible a lot this morning. Can you get to some more application? I'm going to get there. I'm getting closer. Stay with me. How is it that the church is the expression of the the manifold wisdom of God, the many colors of God in Christ, the healing of the world, the oneness? How is it that, that that's true? Here's my answer. Because the church is the only true university in the world. The church of Christ, the, the church, not just any church, the church that loves the gospel, preaches the gospel, teaches the gospel. The church is the only true university in the whole world. There is literally nothing like the church. And because of that, it pictures the uniting of heaven and earth. So here's what that word university means. Uni, which is one, versity. So it's unity amongst diversity. Many colors, united is one. The church is the only one. So we, we apply it to colleges, now, but the word is distinctly Christian, which, by the way, sidebar, Do you know who started universities? Christians started universities. Christians started libraries. Christians started hospitals because of their love for Jesus. The church is the only university. Universities, uh, we are that. So the church is that oneness amongst the many colors. So every organization on planet Earth, be it American University, be it the Republican or Democratic Party. Be it a a book club, a sports team, you name it. Any organization, they all say, I love you if. I love you if. Every one of them said that. No matter, you name it. You think about it. Anything other than the church, they all say, I love you if. They don't have true university. Even some marriages. I've been to marriages amongst non-Christians. They get married. They sort of say stuff like this. Like, I love you if. I I will, I will love you if you ascribe, if you practice, if you obey, if you give money to this, whatever this is. But if you don't, then I don't love you. You're out of the club, you're out of the organization, you're out of the team, you're out of the relationship, whatever. If you can be part of American University, you'll, you'll be allowed to be part of American University if, 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 if you're accepted by their admissions department. Their, their criteria, whatever their criteria is. They'll receive you in if, if the admissions department will say you're good enough to sort of come in. You can be part of the Republican or the Democratic Party if you subscribe to at least these ideas and not those ideas. You can be part of the Washington Nationals fan club. I don't know why you want to do that, but I like the Nationals. They're a good, decent team, but you, you can do that. You can do that if you sort of meet their criteria. You know, you've got to watch their games and. You know, be thankful that you don't have to pay Bryce Harper tens of millions of dollars. He's gone. It's a good thing. So whatever, you can even be part of this NGO because you support these these ideas, uh, or uh, you don't. You're not part of those rival NGOs' ideas. We'll let you in, be, be part of our NGO. So here it is. Here it is. Here it is. You ready? This is the most of the world. It's a love for the worthy. It's a love for the worthy. If you're worthy enough, based off of my ideas, we'll let you be part. And the second you get out of line from what we think is right, you're out. Now, you might be tempted to think that the church works exactly the same way. Just replace a love for Jesus and it's all the same. But it's not. That's not how the church works. And there's one very simple reason why. Because no one in this church or any church Made themselves worthy of the love of Christ. No one. That may be true of other world religions. You pray enough, do enough good things, you sort of, maybe God will be merciful and let you in and give you eternal life. Church doesn't work that way. No one has made themselves worthy of the love of Christ. No one. The church of Christ is the only gathering of the unworthy. Remember, guys, Paul has been laboring at helping the church in Ephesus to see this. Do you remember Christ first loved us? We did not first love Him. Remember Paul's call to remember? Remember that from back chapter 2 verse 11? Paul's first call to remember. Remember you once were aliens, strangers, without hope, without God in the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of, uh, the spirit that is now at work amongst the sons of disobedience, following your own passions. Remember all of these things, but then what? But God. Or but now. It's all changed. And what follows that is what God did to us that believe. What God did. I'm putting an emphasis there. What God did to us that believe by His grace. Not because we made ourselves worthy. He first loved us by His grace. We were saved by His grace. But now we who are in Christ are no longer, we're no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens. Now we're a people. Now God has made His home with us, with me. Man, I mean, I'm a fool. He made a home with me. And God did that by His grace through the work of Christ. Therefore, the church, friends, is unique in all of the world in its membership. It expresses the manifold wisdom of God because it puts all different kinds of people in the same family. And not one of them is truly worthy. It's a true university. It is the only organization that is truly gathering of the unworthy. Therefore, the church can be said to be the expression of the manifold wisdom of God because it takes the manifold reflection of God's created humanity and it makes them one in Christ. This is why you can go to different places in different countries and see different cultures reflected in a church that believes the same gospel. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's no one monocultural. So this is what we have. Heaven on earth, God making one in and through the church. God is saving Jew and Gentile, men and women Rich and poor, slave and free, Republican and Democrat, white and black, American and Haitian and Russian and Algerian, sports lovers and sports haters, tall and short, college graduates and those that didn't even think about going to high school hardly. All of them. And he's bringing them together as one. And not only does he save them, he brings them all together. That's what that word church means. It's an assembly They are an assembly of the called out ones. We come together and the most important thing about us, Restoration Church, the most important thing about us is the same. Is the same. The most important thing about us is the same. The deepest reality, the greatest love that we have is the same. The greatest treasure of our lives is the same. And listen, don't lose sight of this, Christian, on Tuesday. Whatever happens on Tuesday, the most important reality for us as a church hasn't changed. That's amazing. That's amazing. And the great thing about the church is God never throws us out. Jesus says that he keeps all those that are his to the end. He saved us by his grace. He's going to finish it. What God began, Paul writes in another letter, he's going to finish. He's the one that started. He's going to finish finish us. And so listen to this. No weapon formed against the church can stand. Jesus says the gates of hell cannot even stop the church and its advancement. Go back and look at church history and you will see that governments time and again try to stop the church and they never can. Which is the beauty of God to not create some external political government and make it spiritual reality. Some of the greatest explosion of church growth happening right now in the world, folks, are in the three places the church is being persecuted the most. Isn't that amazing? Three places in the world where the church is growing the most is the place where it's being persecuted the most. North Korea, China, and Iran. Church is booming. I mean, it is exploding. But CNN ain't interested in telling you that. Right? No matter how much worldly governments try to press in on the church, you can't stop it. Why? Because it's God-ordained. It's His power. It's His love. It's His strength. You cannot stop it. It's beautiful. He's gathering together all kinds of people to come in to preach, to pray, to sing the unsearchable riches of Christ. Our treasure, our glory. The church is the expression of the manifold wisdom of God. So do you guys understand why me and Joey talk about the church all the time? <laughs> right?, hey, Gosh, could, why does Nathan They always are talking about church membership and church discipline and you know all these other things. This is why. Why are you being so careful with membership? I mean, next Sunday is a members' meeting, by the way, a little advance notice a week from today. And we're going to be really careful. Why? Because it's the expression of God's manifold. we've got to take so careful care of this beautiful thing. And so like Mount Vernon shows what life was like for a rich white guy in the 18th century. That's what it is. So in the same way, the church. Church shows what life will be like when heaven and earth come together in the future. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. For those of you that are visiting our church or not Christians, you know, Jesus says, John 13, 35 you will know my, They will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. One of my favorite parts is being a pastor of this church. I get to see all that stuff happening. And most of the time, it doesn't happen in ways in which uh, anybody, even people in this church know. I get to watch all... It's just amazing how you help each other, love each other, care for each other. So beautiful. So beautiful. A place, one people, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, coming together under the Lordship of Christ. No matter who they are, what they're like, or where they're from. Quick story. First foreign mission trip... This will give you a little bit of a break, right? I'm doing a lot of exposition, a little break on your mind. Ah. Uh, so, quick story. First foreign mission trip, I go to northern India. And I go to northern India, and I'm up there in northern India, and I've never been out of the country. And so I, I, I go out on a plane. We go to this one place in Delhi, and then we go take another flight somewhere else. And we get out, and I'm smelling stuff. And I'm like, i would never smelled before. And I'm seeing masses of people that I've never seen. I mean, just tons I mean, I remember thinking in, in, in the Delhi airport, like I'm seeing more people right now other than like a sporting event that I've ever seen in my life. And we get out, we go, to, we get up there to this place we're supposed to go. We get a truck and we're going around and stuff, crazy stuff going back and forth and all this stuff. People looking different than me that I'm used to. And we get back and we go back to this little uh, part of the city and it's getting dark and we come in there and it smells. I'll never forget the smell. It smells so different. Everything's different. The clothes are different. People are different. We get in and we get into this back hall. We're supposed to go and help these church planters. We're gonna, we're there for a week to kind of help these, these people plant churches. And we get into this back little tiny little room. And when we walk in there, it's dark and there's some strange musical instrument. I still don't know what it is. Like, it looks like an accordion that was a drum. Anyway, and they're up there and we walk into the room, into the back. They're already, there's about 30 people and they're holding their hands up praising Jesus in a language that I did not understand. And I came in there and I just wept. Because I said, "This is my brothers and my sisters. I've never met them before. We all have the same love. I, I want to sing, man, but I want to sing with these folks because it's so beautiful. I don't know what they're saying, but I know it has something to do with Jesus. So beautiful. That's the church. That's the oneness that we have. I can walk into a room of people that I've never met before, and I immediately have the most important thing together with them. So beautiful. And I spent the whole week just loving these people." Teaching them and training them. I can tell so many stories. I'm going to stop. But here you go. What we've said so far is Christ is the mystery. He is making all nations one through the gospel. And so therefore, I'm going to end like right this briefly. What does that mean for us? Here's the application. And guys, what it means for us is I, I will love you if those statements are out of bounds in this church. I will love you if it's out of bounds. I I would love you if you dress like this, act like this, joke like this, look like this. No. God intends to highlight as many colors here in the church. Not just one or two or three colors. All different kinds of people together as one. Therefore, if our love is conditioned upon loving something in addition to or alongside the gospel, we then are loving something more than the gospel. We then are in the realms of idolatry. We're vying for two-ness instead of oneness. And guys, this is exactly where the American white church, which was complicit in not only slavery, but also segregation in the church, this is where they got it wrong. They claimed to love the gospel, but they also to demanded, they also demanded to segregate themselves from blacks in the church. The church that I got married in, the building I got married in, had, 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 a, had, a, had a, what do you call that thing? The porch, the balcony, thank you. Balcony, where blacks had to sit on, apart from the white people. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Not at all. That means they loved Jesus and they loved you in the church if you were white. That's wrong and sinful enough, Satan. That does not express the greatness of the glories of Christ to the rulers in the heavenly places. It expresses the power of a people that were defeated by human armies and human congresses, which is easy to do. And so, Restoration Church, let's show a kind of love and grace to God and one another that can only be explained by the immeasurably great power of God. Let's set aside the emphasis on personal preferences for a greater love of Christ than neighbor. Let's realize more palatably that as Paul says there in verse 2, that we are stewards of God's grace. You see it in verse 2? Paul's a steward of his grace. Verse 7, he says that he's made a minister of God's grace. And so therefore, if we're stewards of God's grace, verse 13 We ought not lose heart if we have to suffer for the gospel to maintain this oneness. Some of you may suffer. Some of you may go and preach the gospel and you'll die. Some may suffer the loss of comfort. All of us are going to suffer that loss, right? Suffer an inconvenience, comfort. Either, Either way, guys, steward God's grace by being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And let me say this to you, Restoration Church, you guys rock at this. Y'all are awesome at maintaining unity. It's one of the 10,000 reasons I love pastoring this church. So beautiful the unity that you work at day after day. So keep going. Extroverts, love your introverted brothers and sisters. All right? Know that they don't get energy from talking to you. All right? (laughs) I forget that sometimes. Yeah, anyway, I'm stopping. So listen, Americans, get to know the many nations that are here in our congregation. 20 plus different ethnic backgrounds in this, con- in this church. That's amazing. Get to know those and, and try to set aside your American uh, assumptions to try to see the different colors of God's grace in that culture and see how beautiful it is and rejoice. Singles, hang out with married folk. Married folk, hang out with single folk. Right? Singles, hang out with married folk with kids. Y'all do that so well. If you're in your early 20s, get to know the few of us that are in our 40s. Not many of us. Pray for more. Therefore, folks in your 30s, get to know saints that are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It's one of the reasons I love our ministry to the uh, Friendship Terrace. If you're on one side of the political aisle as a Christian, as a saint, try to get to know another Christian in this church on the other side of the political aisle. And try to know that when you do that, know that the most important thing about you is the same. And lastly, let me speak to the women of our church because I know the church has not only handled race poorly, the church has also treated women poorly. There's a strand in faithful evangelical churches today that with all good intentions, continue to treat women poorly, not reflecting our oneness. And so listen, this is important to note at the front end, God has created two covenantal relationships in the world. He's created two covenantal relationships, marriage and the church. And as a good reflection of His character, He has called for men to lead those entities. That's clear in Scripture. However, that does not mean that there should not be a culture where women are seen and not heard. In fact, God's manifold wisdom is expressed when churches have women helping men display His manifold glory. My wife does this every day of my life. I'm a piece of work. She brings out the best in me. I need her. And the church needs you, women. So for instance, the Bible commands women to make disciples. That includes everything from evangelism, And as we see Priscilla in Acts and the women of Titus 2, that includes women instructing in the Word. This is why, for instance, we have Catherine on staff at our church. This is why we have female deacons. This is why we have female community leaders. This is why we provide and hope to provide more environments where women can exercise their gifts of teaching without compromising our convictions on leadership. We want to show God's manifold wisdom by giving voices to women in the church. And we believe we believe it's appropriate to have women sing, have women pray, have women read the text, to share testimonies of God's grace to them in the corporate gathering. We believe that with the appropriate measures, women should be able to meet with their pastors and talk about all kinds of things. And we believe this, again, not just because these things are possible from the Bible, but because they are good and beautiful ways of displaying God's manifold wisdom in the church to the authorities in the highest places. And so whether you are African-American, whether you're Anglo-American, whether you're 20 or 50, male or female, American or non-American, lover of hymns, hater of hymns, whatever it is, if God has saved you by His grace and you long to see and savor the unsearchable riches of Christ, if you're like me, unworthy to be a member of the body of Christ, let's join together to picture His love as you have already done so well. And from that love, let's display God's manifold wisdom here in this church by illustrating our common bond in Christ to the world. Let's show the world what true love and unity are like. Let's show the world where heaven can be found on earth. Let's show our neighbors and the nations the unsearchable riches of Christ here in this gathering and as we spread away the rest of the week. Let's pray for help in that. Lord Jesus, we thank You. You are bringing about the restoration of all things. Jesus, that by Your grace and for Your glory, You have laid Your life down, You've resurrected, You've ascended, and You will return to reveal what is now hidden, even today. That in the church is the expression of Your glory, God. May we work towards that end. And may many people be saved and brought into it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.